If you've not been around the last few weeks, we've been studying the book of Luke together, and it won't offend me if you want to jump up and run, get one of these journals back there if you don't have a copy of one yet, because I'd like for everybody to have one. And we come today, uh, Johnny and I had to realize how naive we were to think that we could actually preach the book of Luke in a short amount of time. So we have regrouped about the third time now of how much we can cover and what we're going to have to leave you to read on your own. But today we come to what I'm considering a three-part series on discipleship, and, and here's the first part. And as we approach the scripture this morning, if you want to go ahead and find Luke chapter 9, if you're using one of these, uh, you would turn to about maybe page 72 and just put your finger there. <clears throat> Let me talk to you just a moment about principles of interpretation. When we approach the scripture, there are certain things that we take to the scripture. We don't mean to take our biases. We don't mean to take our cultural lens, but we do. And as we go to the scripture, one of the things that we're taught to do by those who have explained the right way to, to rightly divide the word of God, as, as Paul tells Timothy, we look at these things in history. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, history. These are things written with times and dates of how God worked as Jesus was here on planet earth and as the church began to unfold in the book of Acts. Now, as we read history, we want to be careful that we don't try to copy it because that's not what's happening today. The things that Jesus did when he was physically here on earth, we're not trying to see if we can somehow humanly reproduce those today. But we want to learn from what he did. We want to learn from how he did it. We want to learn from what he taught. So if you can imagine a timeline, you remember we looked back at the story of God, we looked at creation, and we talked about the coming of Christ. Now we're in that season of history where Christ came, and we're looking at what he did. And his disciples were still trying to figure out what it was going to be like for him to set up a new kingdom. They couldn't imagine what that was going to be. And we don't need to give them too hard a time, okay? Because we see it here looking back, and we have some understanding of where he was going and what he was doing. But they did not. And so now today in the book of Luke chapter 9, we see Jesus asking two questions. And I want to pose those two questions to you this morning. We're going to look at what he did in history, and then we're going to look at what it means to us in this moment today. So Jesus, the master storyteller, was also the master questioner, and he posed this question to his disciples. They had just fed the thousands, and now he goes aside with them, and the scripture says in Luke chapter 9 and verse 18, that it happened that he was praying alone and his disciples were there with him. So he asked them these two questions. What do the crowds, who do the crowds say that I am? They answered, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others say that one of the prophets of old has arisen. And then he said to them, who do you say that I am? So let's ask those two questions this morning. Who do the crowds say that he is? 
It's interesting to me that, that as Luke is trying to put together the narrative, if you back up in chapter 9, back to verse 7, it says that Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because some had said that John had been raised from the dead. <laughs> that bothered him a little bit, all right? Because they, they had been a part of seeing John's head cut off, and now they keep hearing these stories about all of these healings and about all of these miracles and, and now about the thousands being fed. And he's saying, who is this guy? Some were telling Herod that Elijah had appeared. Others were saying that one of the prophets of old had arisen. Herod said, John, I beheaded. But who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Interesting that Luke records that Herod sought to see Jesus, but Jesus didn't seek to see Herod just yet. Because Jesus was not trying to set up some famous way of being known. But instead, Jesus was trying to teach his disciples about who he was and why he came. That's such a basic question, who he is and what he did. The person and the work of Christ. So he asked, who do the crowd say that I am? I would ask you today, I thought about spending a lot of time delineating it, but I, I think you can, you can imagine yourself, who do the crowd say that Jesus is? One of the most contradictory things about people perceiving Jesus is that people will try to say that he was a good teacher. I actually thought about going to the store yesterday and just stopping people. So who do you think Jesus is, you know? It's an interesting thing to do when you're in conversation with someone and you're just trying to get to know them. And you say, well, in, in your growing up, did you, did you go to church? I mean, who do you think Jesus is? And it's amazing how many people will try to list him as a good teacher. I just want to address that one point about what the crowds say about him. You do realize that that description of Jesus is not an option, right? Because if he was only a good teacher, then he would have not have taught things that proved to be untrue. I know I put some negatives in there, so let me see if I can go back and say it positively, all right? If he was only a good teacher, why would he claim that he was going to suffer and die and be raised from the dead unless it really happened? So you see, unless you couple all the things about the person and work of Christ together, being a good teacher is not allowed. Now, I, I don't want to take on other religions too directly, but I, I will go ahead this morning and say, Islam makes room for Jesus to be a good teacher. But Islam does not believe that he was the unique son of God who came, suffered, died, and was raised from the dead. And so there's such a great contradiction globally when people try to say, make room for in the crowds who Jesus is. But it's interesting how Jesus turned it from who do the crowds say that I am to who do you say that I am? And this morning, I want that question to come home right to your heart. Who do you say that Jesus is? 
Now, when he asked this question, notice Peter's response. Peter seemed to be the designated spokesman. You know, aren't you glad what it would have been like if Peter hadn't been there? I mean, think about how many things wouldn't have been said and how many things we, we would have missed. Peter was just quick to answer. You know, he's like the little kid. I know, I know, I know, you know. So who do you say that I am? Peter said, you're the Christ. You're God's Messiah. That's who you are. It says, following that, that he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one. Verse 21. Why would he do that? Because he didn't want the crowds to usher him off into some type of kingdom to make him an earthly ruler because he knew that he came to die on a cross. And the time had not quite arrived. Now, I realize I told you to look at, at this in the Gospel of Luke. But for those of you who have your own copy of the scripture, or you can dial it up on a smartphone, let's go back to Matthew and look at this same interaction with Jesus. In Matthew chapter 16, we see that Jesus asked the question in verse 13. It's not far away, back to your left in your New Testament, all right? It's Matthew 16. That starts with an M if you're looking for it on your smartphone, all right? Matthew 16, verse 13. Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi. I always said Caesarea Philippi. Uh, I had one guy say, that, who was it named after? I said Caesar. He said, all right, then pronounce it correctly. So you just pronounce it anyway. It's comfortable for you. But Caesarea Philippi. And he asked his disciples, who do you say that the Son of Man is? The same record that we read over in Luke. Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, some Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But he said, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So Matthew records a little bit more to Peter's answer. But I want you to see how Jesus responded to him. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Let's stop right there. Do we realize that the disciples' confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is not something we figure out with our brain? Flesh and blood does not reveal to you. I can't convince you this morning of who Jesus is and what he did. But the Father, working through the Holy Spirit, comes to our heart and says to us, you need a Savior, and I've sent one. Think about the work of the Holy Spirit. Think about what Jesus is saying now. Now, Peter still didn't have it figured out, so we want to be careful in history that we don't try too much to model after Peter because uh, in the very next passage, Jesus is talking about going to the cross, and Peter said, no, you're not. So, so see, Peter hadn't figured out what it was going to take for him to be the Messiah yet, all right? But Jesus says to him, flesh and blood didn't show you this. Think about it. I don't know if you were young or if it was recent or if it's happening this morning. When you came to personal faith in Jesus. When we come to faith in Christ, it's not something we figure out with our figure-outer, okay? It is something that happens as the Spirit of God confronts us and says, compared to God, 
you're nowhere close. Compared to perfect holiness, you fall so short. And compared to God who is perfectly holy, you deserve to die and live forever separated from him. Now, maybe those things didn't go clearly through your mind or you didn't say it that way, but that's what happens when the Spirit of God comes to the human heart and convinces us that we need a Savior. And as he reveals our sinfulness, he reveals Christ's perfection to us. And he comes to us and explains to us why he had to send Jesus. Remember the theme verse for the book of Luke? He came to seek and to save that which is lost. If we can't admit we're lost, then we can't get saved. Someone said one time, the good news is good because the bad news is so bad. The bad news is that we can't earn or deserve salvation. And we're all separated from God. The good news is God didn't leave us like that. But he came to us and he sought us and he bought us and he brought us to himself. So this morning, I ask you the second question. Who do you say that he is? By the power of the Holy Spirit, God comes to convince us that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, go back to Luke chapter 9, and I have called this the disciples' confession. Confession is an interesting word. We typically use it to say that we've done something wrong, and we try to articulate what we've done wrong. We, we confess our sin. In the Roman Catholic world, confession is a thing that you go to to sit and try to cover your sins with the priest to see if somehow you can get them removed. But the word confession is not limited to that kind of religious act or even that kind of agreeing with God over our sin. The word confession carries with it the creed. Remember what you were singing a moment ago? I like it when a service comes together and it was seemingly accidental, you know. Jay kept asking me this, what, this week, what are you preaching? And I kept saying, I'm trying to figure it out, you know. I've got so many things I want to put together, so I don't know which one's going to come. But you sang it. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. You know what that is? That's a confession. That is a group agreement that we're saying we know who Jesus is. We confess that he is God the Son, sent by God the Father to accomplish for us what we could have never accomplished on our own and bring us to personal salvation. That, my friend, is not revealed by flesh and blood. That is revealed by the work of God's Spirit in your life. I've told you about that trip that I went on last week. There was a young man, we'll call him Vince, that was the first one to come to faith in Christ. And he was the one that God used as a national to start this storying movement. 
And the testimony of his salvation is so incredible. Because one day he was sitting listening to the stories of Jesus and he said, Mom, that's what he calls my friend who lives there. Mom, I want to be a follower of Jesus. Tell me what to do. And she said, well, there's really a a simple prayer that, that we pray. And you can put it in your own words or I can help you. He said, well, what do I say? She said, you tell God that you know you need a Savior and that you believe God sent Jesus to die for your sin and you want to give him your life and you want to follow him forever and he will come and live in your heart and change you from the inside out. He said, Mom, could you help me pray? And she said, okay, I'll say it and you can repeat it. And so they prayed what some would call the sinner's prayer that we all have had to pray to put our faith in Christ one way or another. And when he finished, he opened his eyes and he said, oh, mom, that is so good. That is so good. I have never felt like this in my life. Can I pray it again? She said, well, you don't really have to pray it again. But you can trust it every day. You can know that's why God sent Jesus. So I would say to you this morning, listen to what Paul wrote in the book of Romans. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. From the heart we believe unto righteousness and from our mouth we confess that we believe Jesus is who he said he is. So this morning, I felt it time just to make sure we know the disciples' confession. The confession of the disciple is, Jesus, I believe you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the one sent from God. And you were sent on a mission. There in Luke chapter 9, verse 21, he charged them, not to tell anyone yet that he was the Messiah because I'm telling you, they didn't know what being the Messiah meant. And then he said, the son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. And in other places where Jesus tells them about his death, the gospel writer inserts, They didn't yet understand what that meant until it happened and they looked back on it and figured out what he said and why he said it. So this morning, I want to ask you, you may know who the crowds say that he is, but who do you say that he is? Would you bow your heads and Wait before the Lord. And as you wait before him, can you say that the disciples' confession is your very own? I believe, Jesus, that you are the Messiah. You're the one who came to pay for my sin. 
You're the one who came to fulfill the promise made long ago. And you died for me. And you were raised from the dead for me. And I put my trust in you. If you've never prayed that kind of prayer, this could be your day like the man I told you about that you could pray and realize personal faith. And if you find yourself wanting to pray it again, that's all right. It's a daily thing we do. We hear the gospel and we realize, oh, I'm desperately a sinner, totally in need of a savior. And I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who came to give me eternal life. So Lord, as we walk through these days together, may we learn what it means to encourage one another in our confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And we only know this because you saw fit to reveal it to us through your Spirit to our hearts. We pray our prayer and we sing our song in Jesus' name. Would you look this way? The first song that we sang was accidental that Jay would plan it. This song was added by intention because I wanted you to join in together singing a disciple's confession that he is the Messiah. Look at the words. We'll put the first verse up here on the screen. Just look at what it says. He became sin who knew no sin, that we might become his righteousness. Do you know that's an exact quote from 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21? The one who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might know the righteousness of God in him. The Bible says that God took our sin and he laid it on Jesus. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned to our own way. But God laid on Jesus the sin of of, of us all. So as we sing this confession, we're agreeing together. Jesus, you became sin and you knew no sin. That I might become your righteousness. You humbled yourself. You carried the cross. Love so amazing. Love so amazing. Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the name above all names. You are the blessed redeemer. You are Emmanuel, God with us. You are the rescue of sinners. You are the ransom from heaven. Jesus, you are Messiah. You are Lord of all. So now, I preach my sermon. Why don't you preach yours? Why don't we make this our confession that we believe Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God.